I think it really hit me. And even at, you know, at all of these pitches, I've been the only female that's pitched yeah. at most of the competitions. Yeah. Um, and it's, it feels a bit like a superpower. Like it feels really, I'm really, I feel very empowered by it. Okay, hey guys, welcome to the Bloomex podcast. Um, today, we have a great shout out to mention. Um, shout out to MCRO for becoming a continuing sponsor for the, for the podcast. So this episode and future episodes is going to be brought to you by MCRO, who enables businesses to grow through handcrafted digital solutions of the future. MCRO is a web and mobile app development studio with a competent, dedicated, and experienced team focused on solving business challenges through fast-to-market and producing high-performance digital products. If you're looking to turn your destructive ideas into reality or have a reliable strategic tech partner to explore options with uh, for your existing work or for new work, reach out to us and we'll make the introduction for MCRO and you can have the conversation over a coffee or a bone shaker IPA, your choice. Okay, Serena. Hey, Ravi. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Perfect. So thank you for waiting. I know you got a little held up from the last one. We were wrapping up. No worries. I had a book. I was good. Yeah, perfect. So, I mean, I really appreciate you coming here because uh, this is really last minute booking. We actually had an opening come up and we met th at Thursday at Igen's uh, Pitch to Heal um, pitch competition, mm -hmm. right? Where you pitched for $250,000. Yes. How was that? How do you feel? Um, it was let's start a, right there you know yeah like, like let's just dive in it was cr it was a yeah. crazy experience it was super cool um we were as a company super excited to be there yeah. um we've been talking to again for a, quite a while we met them at cbo um and so we're in the midst of fundraising and this 250 would have been mm -hmm. really really nice to help us close around but mm -hmm. fortunately we didn't win it but um everyone at again is um, still seems super keen to continue conversations, and we got a whole bunch of new leads from that. That absolutely, um, we're kind of following out now, and so we're, you know, it was a great opportunity to get up there and, and pitch. And yeah. I actually think it might have been the largest venue that I've pitched at. <laughs> yeah, no, that was a great place. Yeah, they really decked it out nice too, right? I mean, they did a good yeah. job. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, let's get a little bit back into what your project is. Mm -hmm. Qthero. Qthero. Right. Super cool application. I mean, one of the things I really appreciated from Thursday was how good of a pitch yours was. Thank you. So I've seen a, a few pitch competitions yeah. now. And um, yeah, you, you were really uh, passionate up there. Really, you really knew your stuff. Yeah. Uh, you were uh, really articulate. Uh, you clearly knew your material. You're the chief science officer um, of Chief the scientific officer, senior scientist. It's a startup. My yep. role changes daily. Um, and the product manager. Perfect. Um, but uh, I've been working... Um, on the science for mm -hmm. two years as a master's student. Um, and my prof, Dr. Melissa Radisic, who's also our CEO, have been in our lab for two years. And so I think when it was time to kind of shift into more of a prominent role in the company and actually start pitching, um, because I was so familiar with a lot of the science behind it, it was it's so easy for me to get up on stage and, mm -hmm. and talk about this, because this is something that I've had to present for school a whole bunch of times in very different settings and forums. and so. Um, I think I almost have the reverse problem of a lot of people where some people will sometimes CEOs or people with business background will struggle with the science or the technology, but the, the business part is a little bit newer for me. And yep. so that's kind of where <laughs> I maybe struggle a bit, but mm -hmm. uh, I'm learning lots. And, um, and so it's been a great. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting uh, hearing from, you know, a medical med, med tech company. Mm -hmm. um, that's what you guys are. Yeah. Um, you create, a you're creating a technology. Right. 
And instead of apps, it's more, uh, well, is, is it biological based? Is it, let's um, get into the company. Yeah, how about yeah. that, right? Let's, let's talk more about Quitero. What do you guys do? So we make a biomaterial for rapid wound healing. And yeah. we're trying to change the way that we um, heal wounds uh, by not only accelerating them, but mm. also reducing scarring. And so you'll hear of a lot of products, <clears throat> sorry, that um, might work really well to speed up your rate of healing, but mm. they don't really care at all about the scar or what might be there afterwards. Um, we want to kind of um, come in and, and we recognize that scarring is a big deal for a lot of yep. people. Um, well, you know, whether it be something from a surgery or even one of these non-healing chronic wounds or something as simple as a cosmetic feature, no one really wants to have a scar and um, there's, you know, nothing wrong with it. But at the end of the day, um, the society we live in, everyone wants to have this beautiful, perfect skin. And so trying to create or commercialize this product that has been in development for uh, almost 12 years now. Mm. Um, so trying to get it out of the lab into the clinic where, you know, we can have an impact on people who really, really need it. Yep. Non-healing chronic wounds are a big issue for a lot of populations of people. Um, and on the flip side of that, even just having a product that, uh, you know, someone who is having more of a cosmetic procedure or even something as standard as a C-section mm -hmm. could apply this to reduce their scarring. That's It's really amazing because uh, your pitch deck was so powerful in explaining how effective of a solution you guys are and mm -hmm. compared to especially to what's going on in the market space. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about that in, in a med tech company like yours. How did that start? Like, where is this coming from? Like, you, this is a research that's being commercialized, right? Yep. So our CEO is a professor at the University of Toronto mm -hmm. uh, and she's a professor in chemical engineering. So that's her over here? That's her right there, Melissa Rabisic. Okay, perfect. Um, so she's a professor at the University of Toronto in chemical engineering and um, the Institute of Biomaterials and Biomedical Engineering and so she uh, works predominantly in cardiac research as well as biomaterials. And um, 12 years ago, she started to work with this material that we're trying to commercialize. And they've used it in a bunch of different applications and really started to make a lot of progress with respect to um, the cardiac space um, and using it as a therapeutic after um, a heart attack, for instance. And yep. so we did a bunch of studies in um, small animals and saw that it was really effective at reducing scarring in your heart, which is yeah. pretty rare after yeah. a heart attack. Um, but unfortunately, that path to market is pretty convoluted. It's There's really no one doing it um, and there's really no defined path. And so when we wanted to um, think about how else could we get this to market, um, the wound healing path is a lot more simpler and clearer. And when we used it in a wound healing setting, it also worked really, really well. Um, yeah. And so trying to move forward with that. Absolutely. So I'm just scrolling through your website over here, trying to put some visuals to what you're saying, because mm -hmm. uh, it's such a powerful concept, all right, what your ability to do here. Mm -hmm. um, so you uh, were part of this research team. Yeah. So you personally, you got involved. You're a master's student at the, at the time. Yeah. Right? So I was a master's student at the time. Um, I was doing my master's with Melissa Radisic and... Uh, when it came time to choose a project, she was she gave me a couple of different options, and this was one of them. And she they had just published a paper um, on their wound healing application, and I think she'd started to get a lot of feedback from people that this might actually be a viable commercialization uh, opportunity. And uh, she was like, you know, this is a project. There's like room for you mm -hmm. to work on this clinical translation and get involved with the company, but like absolutely no stress if like that's not something you want to do. 
Yeah. Um, she was she was really really great actually, and and wasn't pushy, which was nice. Um, yeah. But uh, so what I, was the relationship there? Like, were you uh, working under her at the time, or you? Yeah. So as a grad student in. Um, biomaterials and biomedical engineering at U of T. Um, there are a couple of different master's programs. I was doing a research-based master's, and so I had to write a thesis at the end of the process. Um, and so you usually pick a prof that you want to work with. They'll kind of give you a project, and you go from there. And so um, this is one of the projects. And when I started working on it, I spent like the first six months of my master's doing what most master's students do, just trying to like figure out what's going on and define your project. And then once I kind of settled into that and the company kind of started to form, I um, started to get a little bit more involved in, um, in kind of communicating with our old CEO at the time and started to be more involved in a lot of the business meetings. And um, it ended up being something that I really, really liked and I found really interesting. Mm. It seemed like a viable uh, career pathway. And so when I finished my master's, um, we you know we were, we were at this place now. I just, I just finished a couple months ago, but we were at this place where we were like right at the precipice of funding and now we're right in the middle of it. And so it was just a really exciting time. And um, I had to jump into that and kind of see this through and, and see what happens. Amazing. So <clears throat> you finish your master's with this research commercialization process, mm -hmm. dealing with that. Um, so was that, was that like a normal process that most people go through or do you get to see something new here? Right, I, of how to see an existing technology being commercialized, yeah. right? I think I definitely had a unique master's experience, yeah. which I'm really grateful for. Um, I think most students um, will typically do the research, get their thesis, and kind of move on from there. And yeah. I think it was just this good happenstance of timing of um, this research. You know, there there were many grad students before me that worked to develop it, and it being at a place where it really was ready to get out of the clinic. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, me kind of being there at the right time and my prof presenting this opportunity. And um, and then just along the way, U of T is, you know, I'm sure you guys are aware, have, has so many different incubators. Um, and so they're, they're trying, they're doing a good job of trying to be a place that um, gets research out of the lab, which um, is greatly appreciated. And I think it's a big problem in biomedical engineering yeah. and where a lot of this research kind of stays in the lab and it's mm -hmm. so hard to get it out and so it's nice that U of T is starting to try to help with that yeah i mean it's uh, pretty new to hear right like these companies now mm -hmm. spinning out from like a different side than tech yeah yep. usually tech gets all the attention yeah right? you create this app product it comes out how does it look like when it comes out of like a com like such like a, a research focused department or a stream of, of uh, academia right uh, it's a little bit different. Um, med tech as well. In med tech, in the sense of like you actually trying to, to create a diagnostic or a therapeutic, um, is a completely different field and, and game from kind of this this word, word tech that we hear all the time. Um, oftentimes, you need a lot of capital really early on in order to get anything out of the lab, yeah. and you end up in caught in this like chicken and egg scenario where you'll approach a VC and they'll say, oh, we want you to be on a market before we invest in you. But then you're like, okay, but I need money to do, <laughs> I need money to do that, to do the clinical trial, to get to the market, to talk to you. Um, and so it's a, it's a little bit difficult. And um, there's, I think there are starting to be more angels within Toronto and um, and VCs such as IGAN, for instance, that are starting to put more money into earlier stage companies. And 
um, incubators that are, as well that are really helping to um, foster these um, younger startups and are, are, you know, even helping to teach profs a lot of the business words. A lot of professors don't know that and even their students don't necessarily, you know, don't know what a venture capitalist is, for instance, or, you know, how do you do evaluation? Um, so I think you just have a very different group of people who are trying to go through this and yeah. trying to learn a lot of these things. So how do you learn all that? Um, by, I think just by ex like being exposed to it. Okay. And so the first uh, incubator we were part of was UTest. Yep. And <clears throat> they're, um, they were really great because they paid for um, me to go to uh, the Mars um, like workshops. Um, okay. So in the summer, Mars has mm -hmm. uh, a bunch of workshops pretty much on how to start a startup. And they talk about, you know, company valuation, yeah. business model development, um, how do you do your finances? And um, I was really grateful that um, within the company, we all, they, you know, our, my prof and our CEO at the time was like, this, this would be a great opportunity for you to learn. And so I got to go to these classes um, for free, which typically cost um, quite a decent amount of money for a startup, for instance, or even someone who's interested in learning. And, and that certainly helped. Um, and then really just when I, when we went through CDL this past year, just kind of being thrown into that and thrown into this world of hearing these different words and then like pulling out my phone, Googling it and then being like, okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I went through the same thing because uh, I actually went to, I uh, did know at my undergrad in neuroscience and mm -hmm. psychology. So super like scientific field. And then my uh, last company I tried to build was like a tech company. Yeah. I had no, no idea of how to do that. So the business side of tech plus the actual tech side of tech, yeah. um, that itself is a challenge, right? Yeah. And you kind of get paralyzed by these unknown unknowns. What yeah. you don't know, you don't even know. And um, it seems like every time, you know, I do the same thing, right? Think word, these words down as I hear them. Yeah. So writing questions as I, I pop to my head. And every time you, like, you answer these questions, more things come out. Mm -hmm. Because it's a never-ending process of learning. Yeah. Right? I mean, did it ever feel like it's pulling away from your main focus, which was the science side of things that you were interested in? Or was this... Like something you wanted to learn yeah. or the price you had to pay uh, to uh, get what you had to yeah, do? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it was definitely something that I wanted to learn. I okay. knew um, when I went into my master's, um, you know, and I had the opportunity to, to switch and stay in and continue to do a PhD. But yeah. um, I'm not particularly interested in being in academia for a long time and um, didn't know if a PhD would be worth it just because I kind of like the environment. And um, so it was really nice. And um, I think a big sigh of relief actually for me to be able to have this master's that very much involved both worlds where I could kind of um, still stay in this environment that I know and that I really, really love, that being the science, while also being able to kind of dip my hand in the pot of the business world, assuming like under the uh, assumption that I would eventually one day kind of shift over to that. and. It seems to be a pretty good fit thus far. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So let's backtrack a little bit more to a, the actual project. Mm -hmm. um, Q-Thero, yes. right? Let's talk about the actual research, what, what it actually does that's a little different. Mm -hmm. um, how does the actual science part of work? Mm -hmm. So we have um, this biomimetic peptide. Mm -hmm. um, so a peptide is a short sequence of amino acids. They make up your proteins. Yeah. Um, Flashback, and, okay, I remember this. Yeah, <laughs> and um, so we have this short sequence that's yeah. found in nature and it's conserved amongst species. And so 
you know, we humans have it, um, mice have it, um, pigs have it. So most in, most animals have this species, and so that kind of implies that um, it's it's important for some reason. Nature's decided to keep it around, um, and so you know, 12 years back, someone um, within our lab had identified this as potentially being important, um, and we used uh, chemical uh, chemistry techniques to attach it to a collagen chitosan biomaterial and found that when this sequence was directly attached to this collagen chitosan biomaterial, we had um, efficacy in a number of different tissues. And so in the context of um, wounding and skin, for instance, um, your skin cells or keratinocytes, they really like to grab onto it. Um, they're very sticky cells that crawl around. And mm -hmm. so when they were able to grab onto the sequence, we found that they were able to migrate really, really effectively in a way that um, we see in other species. Yep. Um, and so this was kind of where this whole <coughs> wound healing application um, was born, was from observing this in the lab and then, you know, wondering, okay, well, we've seen efficacy in, you know, a number of different cells and um, models before. Mm -hmm. If we use this in a model of wound healing, will we continue to see these same effects? And, and we did. And, um, and so we were really excited about that and yeah. um, have kind of moved forward from there. Perfect. And this is all in a lab environment, laboratory environment? Like, yeah. yeah. All of this has been done um, out, in, out in U of T um, yeah. in a lab there. Perfect. And how long was the research taking? Like, How long does all the whole pro process look like? Uh, so for the wound healing application, I believe we've been working on it for, I want to say roughly five, six years. Five, six years. It's been quite some time in the making and that's not uncommon for a lot of, um, like medical device gotcha. therapeutic. Um, and even, even for us, you know, we're a medical device and so our pathway to humans is a lot shorter than, yeah. um, something like a drug or a biologic for instance. And so it still sounds like a super long time. You know, you spend six years in the lab um, before you can even get to a point where you're allowed to use it on humans. And then from that point onwards, it's still a couple of years before yeah. it's available for everyone. Absolutely. No, um, it's, it's really fascinating to un understand the business side of like, of like scientific research, mm -hmm. right? Like, when we think of this being, you know, going to academia, you establish a, like, you know, write a paper and you go and get, yeah. Know, get yourself published and stuff like that but mm -hmm. you guys went beyond to actually create something to solve a problem mm -hmm. now did it start off like that was it okay this is a problem we're going to go find a solution for it or was it like some kind of research that came across in the laboratory environment like oh this is pretty a lot of potential yeah let's focus on this um in our case um i think that i believe that we had stumbled across this mm. first um Again, this is predating me even being in university. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think we had stumbled across um, this sequence initially. And since my prof um, predominantly does cardiac research, her first instinct was to use it in a cardiac setting. Okay. Um, and so to see how you know your heart cells would react to it. Um, and so I think it was duly motivated by acknowledging that there is a huge, there really isn't any therapeutic if you have a heart attack. There's not much that can be done to save that tissue. Okay. Um, so that is a big motivation for a lot of her research is trying to develop new biomaterials or new strategies to solving that. Um, so that's kind of where this, um, this research was born. So it's a little bit of both, a little bit of us, uh, like a little bit of like 
some happenstance, stumbling upon it um, through an educated approach. Obviously, we didn't just pull seat letters out from a hat. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of science to back up <laughs> why this sequence um, and this material works. And um, the heart and cardiac research is something that's just very near and dear to her. And so we started with that. And then um, I think in trying to investigate why it worked so well in a cardiac sense, yeah. um, hypothesize that, oh, it might actually work well in a lot of different tissue types um, for some of the reasons we had uncovered. So the initial research wasn't necessarily focused on this. It's more meant to be more, because we it came, acro it came across an opportunity mm -hmm. as a possibility yep. while researching a particular about, about heart tissues. Yeah. Right. Um, and then the potential became, this is what this peptide can be used for. Mm -hmm. So w what is this peptide? Like, where, where is it found? Like, um, so can you talk about that? Yes, I can. Yeah. <laughs> this research is um, founded out of science. And so most of this is on the internet, but yeah. um, it's an angiopoietin-1 mimetic peptide. Okay. And so angiopoietin-1 is involved in, um, it's a protein involved in vascularization um, and a whole bunch of other things. Um, and so there's a small sequence in something called the fibrinogen domain, um, which and fibrinogen is um, kind of like a sticky protein. Cells okay. really like it. They like sticking to it. And so the small sequence within that um, fibrinogen domain was shown to kind of preserve some of the stickiness that we see with this fibrinogen peptide. And yeah. um, we were able to still kind of have some of these similar downstream mechanical modes of action and in, in like having cells that want to stick to this. Cool. That really challenged my memory of uh, biology, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that's really fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, so, okay, you came across this this uh, great um, potential came out of this research. Um, you guys are building this. Um, now what? Like UFD says, hey, this is great tech. Mm -hmm. Like, how did that work in that in an in environment? Like, usually, institutions seem to be working at a very slow pace. Yeah. Right, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, U of T certainly moves at a much slower pace than what a lot of it's startups a bureaucracy, do. Yeah, right? yeah. There, it's such a large institution. Um, it's going to move a lot slower than a company of two people, yeah. <laughs> two and a half people. And mm -hmm. so um, I, it, I think it really honestly has, from the day of inception of this company, was roughly fall of 2017 to now. Mm -hmm. It really has taken us probably about a solid year to a year and a half to really get in a place where things are starting to ramp up and we're at a place where a relationship with the university is um, is supportive and we're able to move forward with all of our um, patents in place and our IP. Um, and so I think having some of these um, incubators as well to act as advocates for us when we approach U of T mm -hmm. regarding patents was really helpful um, or even just hearing their advice as to what a potential investor might want to see with your patent portfolio yeah. um, was really helpful for us when we turned back to U of T and said, well, let's make this work for both of us. Um, so how does that process work when you're like releasing, coming out of a university environment, mm -hmm. an institutional environment where you're developing research and you're birthing out a new company, a private entity uh, meant to make money? Um, what are the checkboxes that need to be filled? Who needs to be informed? Like, uh, what I'm trying to figure out is like, yeah. How hard is it to do? Right? Is it a process? Like, I, Yeah, I mean, I think it's a bit of a process. Um, U of T is great. 
they really want to foster a lot of this, but they also yeah. still want to be involved. And yeah. um, they're a little bit too large to move at the rate that you want them. And so mm-hmm. we personally um, had a bit of a sticky issue with our patents and just ensuring that we had them in the right place. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been able through just like skillful, prolonged negotiations have been able to get to a point. But um, typically when you file IP with U, with U of T, you have to disclose it first. Yep. Um, and then from that point, you can either choose to file it, or you can choose for U of T to file it, pay all the fees, or you can have immediate assignment to yourself as an inventor. Cool. Um, and so then you would have to pay to file it and get a lawyer, et cetera. And so there's pros and cons to this, one being you know, if U of T does it, you don't have to pay that upfront cost. Yep. It's a little bit easier. Um, but then you later have to negotiate um, either exclusive licensing or what some milestone payments might be. Um, whereas with, if you do immediate assignment, you know, you've already disclosed, U of T knows, they've assigned it to you. You have to initially pay that upfront cost, which for a startup is difficult for a lot of people. Um, and then from that point onwards, you know, you don't necessarily have to worry about negotiating with U of T, you can directly assign that to the company. Um, and so I think that that is one of the big things um, that we've struggled with in particular. Um, as far as actual, I don't really know if there's any additional disclosure beyond patents um, that U of T really wants to know about, but um, they obviously, in like trying to have so many incubators, like they want their researchers to get involved and they want their researchers yeah, to be thinking about, yeah. you know, how can their technology and their science have an impact on the world. And yeah. so I think U of T is starting to come to this place where. How is the process? Like, is it messy? Is it, is it figured out as you go along? Or is there like a guidebook? Or are there like consultants who actually come in and f- figure this out for you? A lot of it we figured out as we went along. Um, we got some advice from a couple of mentors at CDL um, who were really just like, you know, when we're just talking about investing, this is the kind CEO of what we want to see. The Creative Instruction Lab. Yeah, yeah, Rotman, sorry, yeah. 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 <laughs> um, they really kind of were like, well, um, when we are thinking of investing in a company, this is typically how we want to see a company's patent portfolio. Um, and so in listening to some of their advice, we were able to kind of go back to U of T and renegotiate some of these terms. Or um, it's It's kind of all been us driven, and it's been a little bit slower than we would have liked, but mm-hmm. we're happy with the outcome. And um, yeah. Like, Moving on from that one, yeah. Cool. Like um, one of the things that tech companies have to do, mm-hmm. uh, or should do, should be looking into definitely is when they come out of any of UFT's incubators to a tech product that you actually sign a waiver mm-hmm. or form that UFT lawyers um, have drafted up saying that you haven't used any significant university resource, yeah, like a supercomputer, yeah, or like you know like a laboratory like you have to um, on, to build your company. Mm-hmm. You just, Use this, use the place to meet at. You know, you you, you met your co-founders here. Yeah. You know, you came, developed your idea here. You tested it here. You built it here. Your uh, your initial users might be here. You haven't used actual, like, heavy-duty resource from the university, so the university doesn't actually own a piece mm-hmm. of your IP, intellectual property, and the intellectual property can be worth up to about twenty-five percent of the company. Mm-hmm. Right, and uh, it's something that. Like the, the the hub here is very good with Gray Grapham, like disclosing, hey, this yeah. is a thing, this is what your rights are, sign this, yeah. write at your intake so it's all in clear. But with yours, I mean, you're developed a research within the university environment that you're now commercializing, mm-hmm. right? 
is it does UFD become a partner for like for the long term or like how? um I think it depends on what you want as a startup company yeah. or and a founder and um I think we very much are grateful for uh, you know it's obvious it's my prof's work that she's been doing her entire life and so yeah. I think there's really no way that um in my opinion, any medical device or therapeutic can be developed without such a labor-intensive research and environment from something like Absolutely, UFD. Yeah. And so it's, I think, in a way that, like, and in, in another great example of why therapeutics um, and medical devices are so different from um, different, you know, these different types of tech companies that you see where it costs very little money to create an app yeah. and it costs very little money to distribute that app um, really, all the money that you're raising might be for marketing, acquiring customers, paying your employees. It's very different with medical devices. There's just so much research and and uh, that needs to be done up front to validate it and to show that it's safe. You know, this whole um, idea in tech where it's you know um, like fail fast isn't really a thing in, in medicine, um, and it can't be because if you yeah. fail fast, you can kill people, right? Yeah. So um, it's kind of uh, this this weird thing of like okay you know like let's let's you know fail really fast at the beginning the very very early stages but then once you kind of have something out of place like how do you develop a, a strategy to to make sure you are going through these different validation check boxes to yeah um, well we should have brought this up when we're talking about um your initial research mm -hmm. but you, you brought us a great video here to to show today right what Lot of, some people might be listening in. We're gonna be doing yeah. an audio version, so whoever's listening in can check it out on the YouTube channel. This seems to be uh, something repairing itself. Yeah, so this is one of our favorite vid, uh, visuals. It's from yeah. um, another researcher at U of T, actually, Dr. Um, Rodrigo Fernandez Gonzalez. Yep. And um, they do a lot of research on the fruit fly. Um, and what makes the fruit fly very interesting in this case is mm -hmm. when you wound. Um, the cell layer of a fruit fly, you actually see this rapid migration of these cells mm -hmm. to close the wound. And um, they can heal the wound in under an hour, which is quite rem remarkable to think that, you know, if you were to get a wound, you could heal that in an hour, right? Like that yeah. would be the dream. That would be, you know, Wolverine's yep. secret, right? <laughs> um, and so um, this, is, this is something that um, has really kind of... Um, stayed as an inspiration for us yep. and, and a model animal and it's silly that it's a you know it's a fruit fly and everyone's like ew but they're <laughs> they're really great models for research so is so. this the surrounding cells come in together to close up the wound or is yeah. it new cells coming from somewhere else like so it's um it's all the surrounding cells and so because it, it we see this wound closure in this fruit fly in under an hour um we know that it can't be from cells proliferating or dividing because that takes way more time and mm -hmm. so in this video, what it really is, is um, these cells, when you wound them, they kind of take a second to recover. And then there's a whole bunch of tension which occurs between the cells and um, they migrate and this they use this tension to close the wound really, really quickly and effectively. Um, okay. And that, like, what is that tension? It's from like... It's from the cells. The cells. The okay. cells are um, the cells themselves are really strong. <laughs> um, they're super tiny, but um, they're able to pack a punch. And so... Um, these cells, when you do wound this layer, um, they're all connected. So in this video, the purple that you see, those are the cell boundaries. 
Okay, um, cool. And so those are where the two neighboring cells are, you know, touching and interacting. Yeah. Um, and there are a lot of um, forces between that to hold them together and a lot of little tiny micro machineries to yeah. keep everything in place. And so when you wound that, um, you kind of have this loss of tension and then um, these micro machineries inside the cells reorganize to rebuild this tension to close the wound. Um, it's not favorable for any species to have a wound in their skin. It's, you know, you're, you have an opening or an in for any virus or bacteria to get in and to harm you. And so um, our cells are quite smart. They know how to, to live much yep. better sometimes than humans. And so um, they work really, really hard to make sure that wound closes really quickly. Um, and that's something that um, we want to try to um, mimic in yep. humans. So this is obviously sped up because it went by really fast. Yeah. Six seconds, but this is over 50 minutes? It's over the time span of 50 minutes, yeah. So what's different here between, like, let's say human cells, right? So we, you do surgery or someone gets hurt, mm -hmm. they get a scar, it's a big ugly bruise there for a while, right? So this is saying that this is just closing that up faster? Yeah, so humans, human cells can do this. They're just um, a little bit slower. Uh, and obviously, um, you know, this fruit fly, it's this single cell layer in this instance. Um, it's a much simpler model mm -hmm. um, from humans, but um, there are a number of animals that are highly regenerative. And so like yeah. a fruit fly, um, I think there's like a type of salamander where if you cut its leg off, it'll grow back. Um, you can't do that to humans. Okay. <laughs> um, and so there's this big area of research that is looking at um, just this idea of Re regeneration. Yeah. Why can't humans regenerate to the same capacity that um, <clears throat> other animals or other, other species can? Um, babies, actually infants, in fact, if you if they are cut um, in the wound, for instance, um, if there's you know any reason why the surgery might might need to be done, um, they actually are able to undergo scarless healing. Um, mm. So there is a period in our lives where we're really really young and tiny. Um, where if we do get a cut, um, that wound will heal without a scar and it'll undergo perfect wound healing and <laughs> perfect regeneration. But yeah. as we age and as we get older, we lose that ability. Um, and so, and it's a vast combination of Do we like, know why? Like um, not really. Yeah. Um, and so I think that there are, scientists have gone and looked at um, different levels of different factors in infant healing versus adult healing and there are some differences between that it's such a complicated process and it's mm -hmm. super complicated to study because um, other than humans there's no really accurate model to do that and so um you know in, in, in a, you know an adult for like you or me for instance if we were to get a cut um you typically undergo four stages this is like really nitty gritty science, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you'll typically undergo these four stages of healing. The first being um, something called homeostasis. And so your um, blood will be pouring out, hopefully not, but um, it'll clot and it'll clot the wound. So bleeding will stop. You have this second phase called the inflammatory phase. Um, so all of your immune cells are now um, recruited to that area of the wound mm -hmm. to remove any bacteria. Um, and then in the third phase, you move on to proliferation. And during this phase, this is where we would kind of see some of um, what is occurring in this video of cells migrating to close the wound um, or cells proliferating as well to help close the wound. And then finally, in the fourth phase, you have remodeling. And so hopefully if you're a normal, healthy healing or human, this healing will progress 
as I just mentioned, and everything will go well. But yep. um, for many humans, um, diseases will often impede this. And so diabetes, for instance, is a big one. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of people with diabetes are unfortunately prone to developing um, these things called diabetic foot ulcers. Um, and these don't heal very well because of a number of different comorbidities associated with diabetes. But um, their wounds will often get stuck in this state where it just can't progress. Mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of where a lot of this motivation for new wound healing products comes from is wanting to help these wounds and to kind of kickstart this healing and kind of push them along and, and help them heal. That's awesome. So how did that, how did that become like an actual product, right? The gel. So is this that peptin you talked about that's doing this responsible for this, like the, in the, the collapsing of the cells? So this, you know, the peptide that we do use is present um, during the process of wound healing. It's not a super prominent um, peptide, and that was something that we think is really important is, um, you know, we're not uh, adding a super high concentration of something that's already there and potentially having a weird um, dysregulation of the function. Um, we're really just acting through uh, a mechanical mode of action mm -hmm. um, and really just providing a platform for cells to grab onto and to hold onto and crawl to close the wound. And so um, similar in this in this case where like if you, you know, these cells from the fruit fly, they didn't want to kind of crawl to close the wound, they would just kind of stay there. And there are ways that you can um, alter the fruit fly mm -hmm. so that it won't heal. Mm -hmm. um, that's sometimes what happens in, wound, in human wounds that don't heal. But um, we're thinking in, in providing this, you know, this substrate, this material that these cells really like to grab hold onto. Um, they're able to kind of hold and crawl and, and close the wound a lot faster than if nothing was there. So it's like pretty much putting up a rope ladder. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good example, yeah. So your actual cream or is it's a hydrogel is like the material that these peptides are hung in like mm -hmm. and then when you put it on the peptides go into your skin and given that rope ladder essentially um no so the the peptides are only attached to the gel and so it will not go in your body or anything and okay um but when you apply this cream it kind of just helps to fill the wound um and really just acts as like the the material itself is the ladder okay um and if you know if you're crawling across a rope ladder over a big gap, um, you could have a normal rope ladder that just has like little dingy old ropes and wood pegs, or you could have a really nice one that's like squishy and like has guardrails. And so you'd be a lot more willing to kind yep. of crawl across that. That's kind of the similar sense. And yep, so yep. we're really just making a nicer rope ladder. <laughs> Perfect. Okay, awesome. Uh, that makes it a little bit more like more visu visually, uh, it makes more sense to mm -hmm. understand what's going on there. So great. You, so now you have this product. Is it ready on the market? Like what's going on there? Is it commercialized? Uh, not yet. We're um, still a little bit away. And so in order for us to get to market, we have to be able to show that we're safe on humans. Mm -hmm. um, and so we are proposing to do a small clinical trial to show safety. Um, and then from that point onwards, we'll be able to get to market. And so in... Um, our product development, we're looking at about a year away from product launch. Mm -hmm. And as a strategy to kind of speed up this process, mm -hmm. um, we'll be entering the market as a cosmetic where we're not making any 
claims regarding healing. And so it makes it a lot easier and there's a lot less reg regulatory approval for us to get on the market, but yeah. solely as a cosmetic where people, you know, can't quite use it in these big, big wounds. Um, but it's a strategy that'll allow us to, to get on the market, to lower the barrier to future clinical trials and to future work and to off-label use where um, hopefully um, within a couple of years, two to three years, we'll be on the market for an actual surgical indication or mm -hmm. um, a chronic wound indication. That's amazing. So I guess like going through that process, right? Like you going as a cosmetic product and mm -hmm. you, but you have the research showing that, you know, you guys have this kind of application. Is that frustrating for you? Or do you feel like this is the best way to get the, get the word out there? Yeah. Like get some, get some revenue coming in. Um, I think it was definitely a, personally a really big learning experience and learning that um, the world isn't always as I dream it to be. Yeah. Um, you know, I went into biomedical engineering with the intention of helping people and developing technology that'll have a big impact on people. And so when I started this research and, and even when we started the company, we, um, we've pivoted a lot in how we are planning to get to market. We mm. were really going after um, this chronic wound route. And so really wanting to put in a lot of the work, put in a lot of time and effort to do big clinical trials up front in order to get approved for um, the treatment of chronic non-healing wounds. Um, but as we talked with a lot of people and um, saw a lot of people's faces when we talked about wounds, they um, kind of redirected us to um, not I, to kind of think about it as a, a means to an end or or like what is the lowest hanging fruit in this tree that we can get to that'll help us get one step closer. And so there was, you know, a, definitely a period of time where um, I think I was a little um, disenchanted by some of the advice that we were getting, mm -hmm. um, but it it's good advice. It makes a lot of sense. Um, and oftentimes um, it's sometimes what you have to do in order to actually get this product to the market to help people. And so yeah. we're still a company that is committed to helping people and committed to, to getting a product into the hands of people that need it, but recognize that um, there may be a cheaper way to get there. Yeah. <laughs> um, or there may even be a, a le least expense or a, a faster way to do that yeah. um, by going through this different route that we, since, you know, we are engineers in, in training we didn't necessarily see at first absolutely and i mean this is one of the frustrating things right but when you see this such a great solution you have, mm -hmm. you have and you want to get it out there and these barriers that come to be um to prevent that whether it be like the learning barriers mm -hmm. or the resource barriers or just barriers that you put there to like slow things down right? yeah. regulation it's meant there for a good purpose but it's harming and in, in, in the same time right yeah slowing you down yeah, it's a little frustrating, and it's a big thing within healthcare too. And it's, and I mean, these barriers are there for a reason. There are way too many um, examples of companies trying to kind of get around some of these barriers to get a product to market sooner, um, and then this product has ended up harming people. Yeah. Um, and so that's by no means not what we want to do. And um, I think that's probably why we were a little sticky to it at first, um, but. Uh, these, you know, these barriers are here to protect us. 
Um, it can be frustrating as a startup company when you're you've got very little money and um, yeah. are at, you know walking into these rooms and asking people for a lot of money, and they don't quite see the the value that you see because you've been working on something for two years. But um, I think we've um, I think it's just kind of a big part of, of what comes with being yeah. in a healthcare startup. Absolutely, I mean, that, that's a lot of emotions, mm -hmm. right? Because I mean, the, you've commercialized this product. I mean, to be a business, but essentially that business is meant to fund getting real solution to real people and mm -hmm. helping them out. Um, that, that's always frustrating, right? Yeah. I mean, and that's all set down. But I mean, kudos to you guys for developing such a product in the first Thank place you. and really taking to where it's uh, where it is. But I mean, looking back at this pro whole process, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, Companies like yours have come out of this uh, come out of this kind of procedure. Like they're good for every, all of us. Yeah. They, they are actually finding pro um, solutions to problems. They're finding these problems first and then solving them. Mm -hmm. Right. They're, they're great for society in general. Mm -hmm. So we should be creating environments, and it is the university itself, the UFT, other universities, um, the governments are getting more involved. Yeah. As now the innovation economy is building, right? Like you know, now like the future of work is like entrepreneurship, kind of like what you guys have done right now. Craft, use your skills that you've crafted, but research at your disposal to find these great solutions to great problems, solve it, and you get rewarded. Yeah. And we all, society benefits because you know we gain this in this one spectrum of our being, right? But um, how do we create a better environment? I wrote a whole essay about this. Actually. Really? <laughs> Um, uh, was that was it published online or uh, where can we find this? <laughs> I, it was for a class in undergrad or in uh, my master's degree. Sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've thought a lot about this, and I honestly I could make arguments like in in all different directions. Um, I think a big thing. I mean, I think our healthcare system as a whole is mm. just inherently like inherently wrong like it's it's not very good at fostering innovation and it's not very good at adopting any new innovative devices and so a really good example and um, I should probably fact check this because it's been a couple of years since I followed this but um, the da Vinci robot um, for, for anyone that hasn't heard of it is that um, big uh, robotic surgical tool where the doctor kind of sits behind this screen and almost looks like a cool video game um, but a doctor, we can do these non-invasive surgeries now, um, and they're really cool. And um, there are a lot of benefits to humans and patients for mm -hmm. non-invasive surgeries, largely being, you know, you no longer have to do a big incision. Um, healing time is often faster, and there's less scarring. Um, but they're often really expensive for the hospitals. Um, they take longer to set up. The procedure itself, I think, depending on the procedure, varies. Sometimes it's faster, sometimes it's shorter. But... Um, Oftentimes, on the hospital's um, point of view, it's it's a little bit more expensive and labor intensive. And mm -hmm. so, a couple of years ago, um, the Ontario government ruled that it would no longer be funding um, any uh, surgeries done for prostate cancer okay. with the Da Vinci robot because they felt that um, there wasn't enough value in it. So even though in um, a patient um, if they had the surgery with the Da Vinci robot, they'd have reduced scarring, faster healing times. Um, it would be a less invasive process overall. Even though there's all of these um, really important values to a patient, there what there aren't as many values to the hospital, and and so the Ontario government shut it down. Um, mm. And so it's really quite a shame that the healthcare uh, procedure looks at healthcare as a whole 
um, as opposed, or they don't, sorry, look at it in healthcare as a whole. They only look at it from a single instance. And so to do this, this surgery with the doctor the conventional way, it's a little bit faster, a little bit cheaper. Um, that's really all. But then yeah. to do it with the surgery, it's a little bit longer, a little bit more labor intensive, a lot more expensive because you have to buy the robot. But, um, you know, the patient gets out of the hospital earlier. They don't have to go through um, any rehabilitation. And so it's a shame that they really are only looking at it in such a, a narrow focus and, and don't quite have the ability to look at it long term. And so to answer your question after my long tangent, um, yeah. I okay. think the, the, it, the root of this comes from mm. trying to build a healthcare system that values innovation and to build a healthcare system that um, values patient experience and recognizes that like we're not numbers and we are people that want to interact with people and we're people that want faster healing times and less scarring. And mm -hmm. so being able to provide value in that sense um, would be really important. And I think that's where that's where big, especially with Canada, um, being a single payer healthcare system, that's where we struggle a lot, I think, no, with healthcare totally. adoption. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the pitfalls of our system, right? I mean, as great as universal healthcare is, like mm -hmm. the fact that we feel covered and we have to worry about you know, do we have insurance or not? Yeah. Or like take into, uh, take into a hospital that can have our insurance. Like the American system is so alien to us. Yeah. Like the worries they have, the anxieties there. But as it is, we get a lot of flack for our system being not efficient. Mm -hmm. I mean, I won't talk about the waiting times, but yeah. I mean, I didn't even know about that procedure that you talked about right now, right? Like, I mean. Um, uh, yeah, it's, yeah. and like, don't get me wrong, I'm, super happy that we have universal health care i think mm -hmm. it i think it is a human right to have access to that um, absolutely but i just think what as we, canada yeah. scales um politicians haven't quite been at, as fast to kind of scale along with us and yeah um scale our healthcare system absolutely and one of the things i, I like i really like talking about is um one of the co-founders of angelist mm -hmm. uh, i still can't remember his name <laughs> his name is naval um uh, he he talked about this how these tech companies are now you're shaving off processes that uh, companies internally do before and make yeah. it more widespread. And I think that's really what you know, I'm really excited to see what about Canada and the institutions mm -hmm. embracing technologies like healthcare technologies, mm -hmm. Medicare technologies, yeah. kind of like yours. But one of the things I really like about IGAN and their mission yeah. is their portfolio of companies really, really solve real problems yeah. within the healthcare space. And some of them are actually going out and actually solving even interaction between the client provider mm -hmm hospitals yeah. and actual government systems to put in place right yeah. so everyone's like think slowly chipping away at this giant problem in their own you know and horizontally yeah but uh it's gonna take some time oh for sure i i mean like in the seven years that i've been living downtown i've seen already such a huge amount of progress um in the you know healthcare space and and in fostering an environment that really is committed to trying to take control of this and trying to say, wait, like this isn't what we want. We don't want to have to wait months for an MRI. We don't, you know, when we walk out of the doctor's office, why do I all of a sudden feel at a loss because there's no one for me to talk to? Um, and so it's really great to see that there are a lot of companies and a lot of spaces and, and a lot of investors as well that are sharing this commitment and um, this vision. And Absolutely. Have you put any thoughts uh, on like how this a new structure would look like with the technology? Have you talked to anybody else in the space about it? A new structure of what's right? Of like how um, the healthcare system could work a little bit better, like using technology. Uh, I've been following the whole blockchain thought, the movement at all about yeah. 
how information can be stored and shared better. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, I mean, blockchain is certainly one example. And I think in having, um, I think health, like healthcare, they're just really afraid of digital records. Estonia, I believe, actually, of all places, is really good at digital records and digital storing. And mm -hmm. so um, every citizen has a number and you can find all of your health um, health records on that online, super easy, and it's super accessible. And so there are countries and places that have a good model. I mm -hmm. think that um, a lot of it, I think maybe Canada might just be a little bit hesitant to make that whole switch. Yep. Um, the uh, Peter Monk Cardiac Center, um, yep. they have this very interesting kind of um, almost like two-tiered healthcare system where mm. um, they have this new innovation fund that is founded by philanthropists. Um, and so philanthropists pay money into this and the Peter Monk Cardiac Center out at TGH um, hosts this uh, incubator accelerator almost where anyone that works within the center is able to submit a proposal for money. Um, and so you, you, know, you could be a janitor all the way up to a doctor, to a researcher, and you're, you're welcome to submit an application for this. And they'll, you'll go through a selection criteria and they'll, they'll just give you money to immediately implement it in their hospital. And so I think that's one really interesting example of how a hospital system is trying to be more innovative and be more supportive of getting a lot of these ideas that are kind of stuck in the lab, outside of the lab, and, mm. and helping to kind of ease that, that transition from lab to clinic. Awesome. I mean, yeah, I can definitely see the process being, uh, progress being slowly made. But uh, let's let's circle back to you again. I mean, you're from <laughs> the area, right? You're from Newmarket, you said. I'm from Newmarket, you're yes. From Newmarket, and um, how's that been like with your family and uh, your family and friends? Like, have they been supportive on the entrepreneurial journey? Like, um, are they like, wait, don't you go to study uh, uh, to be a scientist? Like, <laughs> what, what's what's the conversation like? Um, my mom's great. <laughs> my mom was at the Pitch to Heal on okay. Thursday, actually, because it was the same day as my uh, convocation. And yeah. Oh, nice. So I think that was a really fun day for her to yeah. see kind of the closing of this one chapter and then to see me very immersed in what my world is now. And so nice. um, she's been a huge support. She's, um, you know, she's a stay-at-home mom. She was always there for me. She's been my biggest cheerleader. Um and so she's been fantastic just at every step of the way, even, you know, when I went from all of these, um, I, you know, I changed my mind constantly all through like university to the first year of my master's about like what I wanted to do. And she's been very great all the way along, just kind of listening and providing feedback. Um, and my friends in Toronto um, have been awesome as well. They all work um, during my master's. They were all working in industry um, and uh, they were really, really helpful in reminding me that there's more to life outside of research. Um, and so um, even just mm -hmm. them having a structured kind of, you know, nine to six type of job, that was helpful in, in me deciding that that was something that was important to me is having balance. And so I think had it not been for them, I probably easily could have gotten lost and mm -hmm. working ridiculous hours, working all the time. But it was really great to kind of have these people in my life that I was really close with that, um, we're, we're working really great jobs, but, you know, weren't necessarily stuck in the lab yeah, yeah. <laughs> at all hours. And um, they were really um, helpful and supportive and have been helpful um, and, and very supportive. I, like, wrote a huge essay in my thesis even just thanking all these people in my life. And 
Um, I'm very, very grateful. I'm very grateful for everyone that's been awesome. part of my story. That's great. I mean, having that kind of support structure is very important, especially when you go on this kind of journey mm -hmm. where there's a lot of ups and downs, a lot mm -hmm. of pill, like pitfalls to uh, be wary of. Um, I mean, researchers and like businessmen or business people, sorry, would uh, seem to have the same kind of uh, issues, right? Like how to balance mm -hmm. work, uh, work life. And, uh, and our previous guest talked about this where like it's more of a work life integration. Yeah. Where like it's not actually a hard stop anymore. It's about yeah. like how things blend over. Because now with like you know your mobile phone and your in your like in your palm of your hand, mm -hmm. emails and everything coming back and forth, you're you're obviously being bombarded back and forth mm -hmm. during your personal time or your work time about both matters, right? Yeah. How's that uh, worked out for you? Like how are you managing the two? Um, there are certainly weeks where it's better than others. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think that. I've thought a lot about what's really important in my life and a big part of that, in addition to my work, um, yeah. are the people that, it, that are in it. And so I've noticed um, on weeks where, you know, work is really, really busy and yeah. I don't have time for my friends, I'll be kind of bummed out. Mm -hmm. And conversely, when work is really, really slow and I have lots of time for friends, I'll be bummed yeah. out. And so <laughs> I think I've learned through trial and error and through kind of feeling these highs and lows of acknowledging that like, both are very important to me. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, I have my phone on me all the time and will immediately know if you send me a message. Um, and so I think just personally for myself, setting boundaries of, you know, I don't really like to pull my computer out after dinner to do work. I'm more than happy to send a quick email, but, you know, I probably won't be sitting working in a document super late into the night because I know that just makes me super bummed. I won't get a good night's sleep and I won't be productive the next day. Um, and so uh, trying to set these, yeah. set these boundaries for myself and um, my, my prof and our CEO, she's, um, she has a family, she has kids. And so I think even just in her also having this understanding of you can't always be working and you can't always be on your phone because there are other people and other things in your life that need time has also been helpful. Um, I usually try um, Saturday, every Saturday morning, I'll do brunch with my friends. Um, we all live very close to each other. And so we'll just, we like, without failure, every Saturday we'll wake up, go to someone's house, make brunch. And I think that's been super helpful for my sanity. Yeah. Because even in those super busy days where, you know, I've had to go into the lab on, on the weekends, I know that at least I will get this time in with the people that I love and I'll be able to kind of have a nice meal, sit back and relax. Yeah, that's pretty good. I mean, having that kind of figured out really does help things uh, move along. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, how's the how's the change been from like new uh, growing up in new market, <laughs> right, uh, to like now downtown working in like in, in pretty much a startup, mm -hmm. right? Like going from uh, going there to university. You yeah, went, you went you moved downtown. I moved downtown for my undergrad. Um, it was good. So I think um, my mom really loves the city, and so when I was younger, we would always come down to the city every couple of weeks and mm. would hang out here. And um, so I wasn't any stranger to the city. Ironically, actually, when it came time to apply for um, universities, yeah. I was adamant about not applying to U of T because I think everyone is stuck up there. <laughs> um, <laughs> and my mom, thankfully, she was like, okay, well, like, maybe you should just, like, what's the harm in applying? Yeah. And I'm like, fine. Um, and then I 
I ended up obviously spending most of my career thus far here. And so it's, you know, it's just kind of funny that I was so quick to judge. But um, I think the adjustment wasn't too bad. New Market's super close. And so when I was in the early years of my undergrad, mm. my parents would still come down and like give me food or hang out with me. Um, and now, and then I, I did actually live in Boston for a year for an internship. And so that I think would be the biggest year of personal growth was I really, even though I like moved out from, from home, I was still very close to home. And so when I moved away to a different country, um, really had this moment of being like, oh, I'm on my own. I don't have anyone to, you know, bring me leftover dinner. Yeah. Um, and so I think that was kind of this, this very prominent moment of growth. And then when I moved back downtown to finish my, my degrees, I think we found this really nice balance of every once in a while grabbing lunch with my, my mom or my brother. And, but, um, I think the adjustment has been pretty, I think, it, I think I was, I was like ready for it at the time. And so it's yeah. been pretty good. Perfect. This isn't great. Um, I think one last thing, mm -hmm. right. Uh, we don't see like, there's always talk about like, there's been enough females in startups and STEM and all that kind of things, right? What would you say to that? Like, like, like we now are seeing a lot, a lot more like females led CEOs. We're mm -hmm. seeing a lot of like females in entrepreneurship, right? Yep. Um, do you do you agree with the statement? Like, do you see girls going to this more? Um, slowly, yes. Yeah. I know the engineering faculty at UT has slowly started to grow. Um, I think I kind of had a very um, unique experience in choosing to go into biomedical engineering. Yeah. Um, it's, I think we're roughly 50, 50, which, um, is amazing. It's what it should be. And, and it was, it was really great to be in that environment. And, and even my lab, I think we're roughly 50, 50. Um, but that's not an accurate representation of what it's like to be in engineering, to be in any other field of engineering, to be even in any other lab. Um, and it's, I think it was really apparent to me when yeah. I, first started pitching and I first started to go to a lot of these startup events. I think I was the only female founder at UTEST yeah. my year, my cohort. Yeah. Um, and that was astonishing to me yeah. to go from this environment of, of knowing that like STEM or female representation is still low and, and seeing it a bit in undergrad um, and a bit in my master's, but then to walk into this room and be the only female there. Um, I think it really hit me. And even at, you know, at all of these pitches, I've been the only female that's pitched yeah. at most of the competitions. Yeah. Um, and it's, it feels a bit like a superpower. Like it feels really, I'm really, I feel very empowered by it. And okay. I, um, I acknowledge that I am at this place because I've had a lot of really strong advocates for me who have awesome. helped me get to get here, but, um, it kind of bums me out a bit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, and so it would be really great. Um, to see more females getting involved. And I think, I think it's slowly starting. And I think even just having, um, you know, seeing more females in CEO positions Absolutely. makes a lot of females feel like, oh, that's a job that I could do. Um, and I don't think that a lot of people realize how important it is to see yourself in a, in a job, in a career, in a role. And so it's, it's a very large systemic issue. And, um, and I think, I think we're slowly starting to make progress and, um, people are starting to, you know, the numbers are starting to get better, but it's, it's still not good. Yeah. Um, absolutely. And, um, you know, thank you again for coming on and talking so kindly about uh, everything that you're doing and, um, what the process looks like, uh, I think we need a lot more people looking at 
you know, these kind of technologies mm-hmm. as, a, as, a, as a way to create companies, yeah. right? As, as a, to create this. So hopefully this, um, this podcast helps inspire some other people I take their so research too. and commercialize yeah. it or like go into this kind of field to go and find problems that can help, uh, mm-hmm. help the world and help all of us really. Yep. Um, so I appreciate this. Thank you for coming on. It's Thank been an hour. Thank you for having me. Right? It's been great. It's been great. It's been great. All right. Perfect. Let's cut this now. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs>